Welcome to Friendly Words, the sermon podcast of Pratt Friends Church in Pratt, Kansas. The message you're about to hear was originally preached at Pratt Friends Church on Sunday, March 13, 2022. It focuses on Jesus' self-control in all circumstances, especially in difficult times. The message to all who will listen is, the Holy Spirit, God who lives in and through believers, gives us self-control. Now, here is Pastor Mike Neifert. God, thank you that you are in this place as you are every week and that you're wherever we are throughout the week too. You can speak to us and guide us in every moment of every day, and this is just another moment in which we submit to you. We acknowledge Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords, as the director of our life through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's guidance, and I pray, God, that in this moment that you would do everything that you desire to do in us and then when we go from this place through us. In Jesus' name, amen. I will probably never be made the poster child for self-control. I am far too impulsive to be granted such an honor. My spur-of-the-moment purchases in the clearance section at the back of the Dillon store alone would disqualify me. I am a sucker for cheap stuff. We talked about this in Sunday School this morning. Just because it's cheap doesn't mean you have to buy it. But that two-pack of Twinkies is only 59 cents. It must be purchased so that I can keep it in my snack drawer at work. Definitely not poster child behavior. But I have grown in self-control. I am less likely today to blurt out hurtful insults than I was in middle school when I was quick-witted and sharp-tongued. I have more recently, after recognizing that I was out of control in my consumption of Dr. Pepper, gone more than 18 months now without pop. My social media and entertainment habits have changed for the better, too. I have greatly reduced the amount of time I spend mindlessly scrolling through Facebook and those kind of things and sitting motionless, mind and neutral before a screen. Not judging, just saying that's what God's doing in me. I credit the Holy Spirit's work in me for all the gains that I've made and take full responsibility for every lapse in judgment. That's me. When I opt for the flesh, it's my fault, not God's. God is working to create in me a more under control mind and body, and sometimes I just take the reins and do my own dumb thing. I'm sure you can relate. If you have been around for very long here, you've probably heard me talk about the fruit of the Spirit, a list of attributes which Paul gives to the church in Galatians chapter 5. Perhaps once or twice you've also heard me include the acts of the flesh, which Paul outlines in the same vicinity in Galatians 5. Whether you've heard these things before or not, let me read them now in their context To do that, I'm going to back up all the way to verse 13. Galatians 5, 13 to 26 gives us the knowledge and guidance for living for God, which we need. So please pay careful attention as I read. 
you will be given individual direction, and we together will know how better to live with each other as a church. We're at Galatians 5, 13 to 26, and here we go. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. He's writing to the church here. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. One thing is absolutely clear here. Not one of us can do the right thing consistently without the help of the Spirit of God. No one is going to overcome sexual immorality or jealousy or fits of rage or any of these other acts of the flesh without divine assistance. We can't even get along in the church without the help of God. Amen? So we're following God, right? We're getting along okay? If you've got something between your brother and you need to take care of that. Okay, please don't be discouraged by any of this, though. I'm not sharing bad news. I'm shouting out the good news here. Believers, we have an ever-present helper, the Spirit who produces in us love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Through him, we overcome sin and live out the righteousness which we have received by faith in Jesus. He makes us righteous, and then he makes us righteous. Paul in Romans 7, after talking about his own struggles to do the right thing, you remember the passage where he says, the good that I want to do, I don't do that, and the evil I don't want to do, that's what I keep on doing. That's what we're talking about here. He speaks after that, he speaks of the reality that we live in as we seek to follow Jesus in the power of the Spirit. So listen to verses 24 and 25. This is what he says. This is him talking about himself. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Whew, thanks. Are you thankful today for the wretchedness that God has delivered you from? Are you grateful that you aren't the same 
man, the same woman that you were when you first believed on Jesus. I am thankful that I am not. Thanks be to God. He rescues, he redeems, he transforms. This sometimes barely under control guy is by far more self-controlled than he ever should have been, and it's because of the Spirit of God that lives in him. When you see any good in me, look up to heaven and say, you did a pretty good job with what you had to work with. And know that I'm saying the same thing about you. Thanks be to God. He delivers us through our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, well, let's read Romans 7.25. It's up here on the screen. Let's read this together. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. With the rest of our time together this morning, we're going to focus on the events of Mark chapter 11. As I read these verses over and over again in preparation for this message this morning, I noted Jesus' control over himself in each situation that he faced. His response to the praises of others, to the evil he sees, to the trapping questions of his enemies, shows you and me how we can deal with similar experiences in our lives. That's what we're going to talk about today. But first, as we've done each time we've taken on a chapter of Mark, we're going to hear the whole chapter from beginning to end. As we listen to Shannon read this morning, uh, we're going to listen to God's Spirit, right? Because we want to make sure that we hear the Spirit. And He may give you a message that is different than what I'm going to focus on. So make sure you're paying attention. Okay, Mark chapter 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing, untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat your fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. 
And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. They arrived again at Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Thank you. So the stories in this chapter are pretty great, aren't they? There's plenty of drama in each incident uh, as it's rolled out for us. There's this sense of suspense, what's going to happen. In the first part of the narrative, Jesus rides into town to welcoming cries of an oppressed people. They are sure that Jesus is their Savior. They shout a very politically charged word, Hosanna and wave the symbol of Jewish independence, the palm branch. It's interesting that a book arrived in the mail last week as I was getting ready for this message. Jason Porterfield in this book, Fight Like Jesus, How Jesus Waged Peace Throughout Holy Week, makes it clear as we read here, it's more than just a bunch of football fans with their little we're number one things waving around here. It's far more serious than that. Let me read a few excerpts from Porterfield's chapter on the events that we're focused on this morning. I'm going to be skipping around a little bit in his book from pages 31 to 33 about. And so I just want to let you know that it's his thoughts and read those for you. Hosanna is an Aramaic form of the two-part Hebrew word. The verb Hosea or Hosea coupled with the emphatic particle na. Hosea means help us, deliver us, liberate us, save us. The ending na conveys a sense of urgency. When fused together, Hosea na meant, oh, save us now, or deliver us, we plead. In essence, it was a cry for help. It's important to realize the crowd's acclamation was a byproduct of their belief that Jesus was coming to their rescue. 
A paragraph or so later, Porterfield continues, Matthew's version of this event adds that people spread their coats on the ground for Jesus to travel over. Such an act may seem strange to you and me, but for those present that day, its meaning was unmistakable. Jesus' now coatless onlookers knew full well that this was the customary way to coronate a new king. Suddenly, the scene looks less like a jubilant pep rally and more like the start of a political rebellion. Finally, Mr. Porterfield explains the palm branches. After briefly detailing the offensive actions of Antiochus Epiphanes when he conquered Israel, he tells of a revolt led by the Maccabean family. Judas, in this particular paragraph, was a member of that Maccabean clan. Here's what he says. Eventually, Judas the hammer recaptured parts of Jerusalem, including the Holy Temple. As Judas made his triumphal entry into the city and proceeded to cleanse the temple, his followers waved, you guessed it, palm branches. From then on, palms became a key symbol of Israel's quest for independence. So the people shouted Hosanna and waved palms and threw down their coats They thought they were welcoming a new worldly ruler, a rescuer. Roman oppression would soon end. Their king would rule on David's throne forever and ever, because that's what was promised, right? How much self-control does it take to not get puffed up when people are acting like you're the king? How hard is it to say no when... They want to figuratively make you king, or they say all sorts of great things about you. Compliments are encouraging, but they can lead to pride and self-worship. I'm so great, everybody thinks so. (sighs) Jesus resists this very human urge to accept the accolades of people and to ascend to the throne that they're offering him. We as followers of Jesus need to cry out to him whenever we're honored, pointing those who think that we're all that to the one who really is all that. Jesus, our King of kings and Lord of lords, and let me add, the God of all gods, he alone is worthy of praise. Always point to him. Now, before we talk about the cleansing of the temple, let me read verse 11 for you again. I think this single sentence shows us how self-controlled Jesus was. So listen. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Mark tells us that there's this pause between when Jesus saw what was going on in the temple courts and when he turned the tables over and when he drove out those who were defiling the temple, drove out the animals. Matthew and Luke also tell the story of this incident. They don't mention this pause. Ancient Hebrew storytelling was not concerned with linear thought like we are. And so they sometimes grouped ideas and compressed things just to make the story flow the way they wanted it to. Matthew also condenses the withering of the fig tree story into a single moment. Quick note here. John covers Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, but doesn't speak at all about the fig tree or the temple cleansing. 
His story, in fact, is much earlier in the narrative, and some have speculated that they're two separate events. In John's gospel, it comes right after the changing of the water to the wine, very early, like, here's first miracle, now let's chase people out of the temple. John notes it was at a Passover, but it seems unlikely that it's the same one, this last one that Mark is referring to and that Luke and Matthew also talk about. All this to say, it seems likely that there was, at this Passover that Mark is reporting on in chapter 11, Jesus' last Passover on the earth, a pause between Jesus seeing the chaos in the temple and reacting to it. Assuming this to be the case, I appreciate Jesus' decision to sleep on it, or more likely to pray over it. When he enters the temple courts the next day, he isn't flying off the handle. He's acting decisively to right a wrong as his father guides him. His driving out of the buyers and the sellers and the turning over the tables has one aim— to free up space for worshipers, or more specifically, Gentile worshipers, to come and pray. How much wiser would our actions be if we would pause to pray before we did anything? You and I need to stop and consider what God wants us to do before doing. All right, it's fig tree time. The question in my mind as I read this chapter, perhaps it's the same for you, is why curse the tree? It seems so random and capricious, maybe even a little weird. I mean, I don't talk to trees, let alone curse them, right? Because this thing Jesus did may puzzle you as well as it did me, I did some digging to see what scholars think of this part of the narrative. Without spending a lot of time on the fruit cycle of fig trees, let me simply say that a fig tree with leaves should have had fruit because the fruit came on the tree before the leaves came out. It would start forming before that. So even though it wasn't the normal time for figs, there were multiple crops of figs in this land throughout the year. Even though it wasn't the normal time for it, the leaves suggested that there should be fruit for the picking. FFA lesson done. As for why Jesus cursed the fig tree, those I read suggest that he performed this miracle as a sign to Israel that judgment was coming upon those who appeared to be fruitful but whose lives were not in fact set on God at all. The fig tree is often used in the Old Testament as a symbol for Israel. Look at verse 18. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Religious folks with hearts set on murder. That's exactly what Jesus is condemning here. The kind of people that Jesus is condemning with this act of cursing the fruitless fruit tree. They are, as far as God's kingdom is concerned, fruitless. There's no good in them. We would do well to heed the warning and pray, God, produce your fruit in and through me. 
Beyond the symbolism implied in Jesus' actions against the figless fig tree is Jesus' specific message. Put your faith in God when you pray, and he will do his work through you. Man, there's so much in this chapter. But those other things are going to have to wait because I want to talk briefly about the final chapter of this chapter. The religious leaders, this time it's the priests and teachers of the law and elders, they question Jesus' right to do what he's done, and we're assuming that they're talking about the temple cleansing, chasing people out, all that kind of stuff, because that's the context, right? Rather than answer them directly, Jesus asks a question in return, a question which confronts these leaders with the truth. They resist God's authority in all circumstances. They rejected John the Baptist while masses flocked to the Jordan, repenting of their sins. They rejected Jesus while the rest of Israel saw and acknowledged his power. They kept ignoring what God was showing them. In Matthew's gospel, we have a parable and a lesson given to these men. The conclusion of the matter is found in Matthew 21, 31 to 32. And I'm going to start about halfway through verse 31 where Jesus is speaking. Again, that's Matthew 21, 31 to 32. He's addressing these same people as he is in Mark. I'm just reading Matthew's version of this. Jesus said to them, verse 31, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. (laughs) Perhaps there's a double lesson in self-control here. Jesus displays great self-control by not responding harshly to the inane question before him. And the tax collectors and prostitutes show self-control by opting for repentance at the message of God rather than choosing rebellion and rejection as the religious leaders did. Shall we review what we've learned about self-control from Jesus and remind ourselves that the fruit of the Spirit, which we talked about at the beginning, are things that we want and desire in our lives because they display the work of God in us and through us. First of all, self-control means not letting the praises of others sway us. We graciously accept compliments and encouragement without letting it go to our heads. We direct all worship to God. Second, when faced with a difficult situation which we believe we should take action on, self-control looks like Jesus' pause before the cleansing of the temple. We would do well to pray before leaping into action. Finally, self-control from the Spirit will help us to deal with those who hate Jesus, who reject his authority, who antagonize us. Again, we would be wise to seek God's direction and ask for his words rather than depending on our own faulty and frail wisdom and direction. What do you need to do in response? Because it doesn't do any good to hear God's word, James says, if you don't put it into practice. Have you acted rashly recently? 
Do you need to seek reconciliation with someone you harmed by your lack of self-control over your tongue? Is there a dreaded situation headed your way this week which you could pause to pray about right now? I'm going to guess that there's at least one of those questions that you answered yes to. Do what you know you need to do as we take just a few moments of silence to talk with God and to respond to his word to us and ask God for his guidance. Ask him to give you his spirit's help in the area of self-control. You can ask him for help in other areas too. But let's go to God and ask him to do his work in us and prepare us for what's going to come this week. Father, thank you that you use your word to direct us, that your spirit uses it to make sure we're in line with your will instead of our own, that you show us how to live by your spirit instead of by our flesh. God, thank you for self-control. Thank you for producing that in us through your spirit so that we're not fruitless like the fig tree so that we can live out what you've given us to do. God, be gracious to us. Forgive us where we falter, where we choose the flesh instead of your spirit and bring us back to you moment by moment, minute by minute, every day of this week. Help us to be an encouragement to one another. Help us to be a blessing to those around us in all things, in all circumstances. Give us love, joy, peace, forbearance, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, Show yourself to the world through us. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. If you want to hear each week's message, be sure to subscribe to Friendly Words in your podcast app. May God bless you as you follow Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit.